Hello and welcome to The Culture Bunker, your pop culture podcast roundup. I'm Sean Pattenden. And I'm Alex Andreu. This week we are thrilled to be joined by legendary music writer and broadcaster Paul Morley to talk Island Records, Factory Records and all records. And we don our parka and we put our hands behind our backs as we listen to the new album from Liam Gallagher, Come On You Know. No, that's the name of the album. <laughs> we go out to a big scary cinema towards the summer's first big blockbuster release. Top Gun Maverick still would. Still would. And we get comfy in our nest to watch the latest major sky adaptation of the Midwich Cuckoos. All this and more on today's Culture Bunker. Welcome to the Culture Bunker. Let's say hello to our first guest. Paul Morley is a modern-day Renaissance man. He is an author, broadcaster, record label boss, musician, man about town and lord of the high critique. <laughs> hello, Paul. It's great Hi. to have you in the studio. Thanks for that. That's, that's, I know what I am now. <laughs> I've always wondered. You, you can give me notes later, though, the corrections. Um, we'll talk about the Islander book later in the show. Um, but what are you working on at the moment? Because you're a man who usually has a few books going, I believe, at the same time, it seems. Yes, I, 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 yes, I, I I can write books now because they they pay pretty much what journalism once would pay. So, you know, I used to want to write hundred thousand words for the enemy, and now I can. <laughs> so I tend to write a lot of books now. You know, uh, yeah, I'm working. I'm working on a couple. Yeah. Um, one hasn't yet sorted itself out, uh, 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 and the other one is is possibly a, a kind of extension of a, of a book I wrote in the '90s called Nothing, which was oh, about yes. suicide of my father uh, and um, if only because to change the title because um, Doris Lessing of all people once um, lectured me about how it was the worst title ever in the history of books. What was her reasoning then? Well I think she thought that I was basically saying it was nothing you know oh. <laughs> I had reasons why I'd called it, called it nothing yeah. to do possibly oddly both with Depeche Mode and Samuel Beckett Writing books, is, it's turned out, is, is is something I always thought I'd end up doing in my 60s, and, and, and indeed I have ended up doing it. Well, hooray. It's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? Really Some good. things work out. Yeah. You're yeah. never in your 60s. Uh, no, I was exaggerating that hope. Right. I might say, <laughs> you're never in your 60s. But then You've I got a couple I, of decades I, I look go. at the, yeah. you know, what I was doing in the 70s and figure mm. that I must be in my 60s, because otherwise I would have been four years old. So <laughs> something, something's not worked out. And I say musician because I know that you wanted to explore after years of writing about music, the creation of music. Are you still doing this? No, in a way I've returned to how it was before. I, I, I studied at the Royal Academy of Music for mm. a television programme, uh, how, to, how, to, how to be a composer, if yeah. you like. Couldn't believe that they told me that I could be a composer without actually being able to play an instrument mm -hmm. and that you could write a score. And indeed, <laughs> did I, I did, because mm. there's a kind of mathematical element to mm. it as well mm. as a spiritual element. Mm. So um, it was wonderful while I was at the Royal Academy because yeah. if I wanted a harp or a string quartet, I could snap my fingers and five minutes later, th an amazing string quartet would walk through the Fantastic. door or a harpist. Yeah. As soon as I left, it was back to the electronics, if you like, you yeah. know, and being in a studio sort of telling people what to do, as I had done with Art of Noise. Yeah. But so you're not making it at the moment. Go on. Go on, yeah. yeah. Write my, write my books, second write some, string yes. quartet. <laughs> write your next quartet. 
Let's meet our next guest. Musician and journalist Anthony Teasdale has written a bevy of tunes and for a host of publications, including Arena and Esquire, and he launched in his editor of Umbrella magazine, a self-confessed crisp enthusiast <laughs> with a harpist on staff, I would guess, and a dance floor legend fresh from the trauma of Liverpool FC coming second. I'm not Welcome to the about, culture bunker. I'm not traumatised by <laughs> Liverpool's season. This is fantastic. Welcome to the, the culture Thank you very much indeed. Yes, uh, all is good here. I'm very excited about various football matches that are occurring. Very good. Uh, but I'm more excited because I've got a new record out this week. Lovely. Tell I'm us very about pleased it. To, right, so it's self-indulgent. <laughs> it sounds a is bit that like the title. No, but that's my ethos <laughs> in everything I do, and um, and it's a five-track EP on vinyl. And oh my goodness! Now I I sold my records two and a half years ago to pay a tax bill. Sorry, so is it 7-inch? No, it's 12-inch. Oh, it's 12-inch. And it's great value for money, five tracks. 12-inch EPs. It's a 12-inch EP. And um, I sort of mo- wrote most of it over lockdown. And it's just amazing what you can do now. You know, I've got... Um, you just use a programme on your laptop and you have, like, incredible professional studio there mm-hmm. and then. Put it up on the SoundCloud. And f- some people heard it and said, let's put it out. So it's out, yeah. I think, this week. Amazing. Um, Jubilee weekend coming up. Any big plans? Uh, well, as a, coming from an Irish Catholic background, <laughs> um, I, I intend to drink two or three cans of lager on up my roof terrace. <laughs> there may be some, I might buy some frazzles as well. <laughs> if, uh, just to really, really show. And, and then I can throw stones at a statue of uh, Oliver Cromwell. Can I, can I throw a horrible generalisation to you? Yeah. Um, and I can do this because I'm a foreigner, so I know yeah, nothing fine. about this country. Um, Scousers seem to me to be the most comfortable bunch of people at expressing Englishness without it feeling like nationalism. It, Why is that? I like they seem comfortable in the English flag without looking I, I, like BNP supporters. I, I would say, I, d- I mean, there is, we can get very complicated now. I think it's a lot of this through football. And there are lots of myths around this. But the big thing that's been, and Paul probably aware of this, is that we are not English, we are Scouse thing, yeah. which has been going over the last time. Mm. But now, I think that isn't to be taken seriously or particularly literally. Mm. And it's become, I mean, if you share the northwest of England with Mancunians as we do, we're all obviously, to an extent, English. But there is a genuine difference, I would say, with Scousers in that the influence of the Irish display Despair is so great on the city, you know, that you had up until 100 years ago, over half the population was born in Ireland. And so you do have a slightly different way of looking things. I think it's often over eggs in football, and that's mostly Liverpool rather than Everton. I think Liverpoolians are quite happy with that. Having said that, I, I would say Liverpoolians are mostly English, yeah. but but of a, sli- of a, dif- of a different self-mythologizing version of it. Um, I'm sure, Paul, well, Paul, what do you think? Well, I think in the best sense, Liverpool's always just been another country. Yes. <laughs> I've not even thought of it, its Englishness at all. Uh, in the best possible sense, it's mysterious, wonderful, exotic, strange, other. it could be in the middle of the Pacific, middle of the Atlantic, could be up at the Antarctic. It's a special other country. Maybe us Manx were always a little bit jealous of the fact that it was so distinctively another yeah. country, to the extent that we had to try and drag the Irish Sea closer to Manchester with a ship canal. <laughs> yeah. we're, 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 we've never forgive them for that. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Much more from both our guests in a bit.
Before we move on, a reminder, you can get The Culture Bunker and all our shows early and without ads when you support us on Patreon. That means daily episodes on politics, science, pop culture and much, much more, including aliens. They're quite heavy at the moment. Plus all manner of exciting merch and special shows just for you. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. The small fictional English village of Midwich is mysteriously subdued by a force for a day. Everyone passes out. On coming round, all the women capable of bearing children find themselves pregnant. As the children grow, and they grow fast, it becomes clear that they are special and have their own agenda. This sky, modern-day retelling of John Wyndham's classic sci-fi chiller, is anchored around a child psychologist played by Keely Hawes and Max Beasley's local police chief trying to unwind the mystery. Here's a taste. I can't sleep. And why can't you sleep? Because bad things will happen. Since 9.47, we've had a complete blackout. No communication in or out. I've got no idea what it is. The way that I felt right after, I couldn't put it into words. It felt like I was visited. I can feel life growing inside me. Whether we like it or not, we are all in this together now. She wants it to hurt me. This is not what you think it is. I don't trust them. Anthony, the book has always been popular, and there is a classic 60s film version of it, Children of the Damned. But recently it's enjoyed a real revival in popularity with prominent voices saying it's much more than a horror yarn. Did those extra layers come through? Uh, I hadn't thought of that, but now you say it, yes. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of that repressed Englishness of there's a lot of people staring out of windows, mm. you know. And there's it, a lot it, of curtain twitching. You know what I mean? There, there is that now. Is that a bit of a cliche these days? Do people do this as much? But I, I don't think the essential nature of Englishness changes that much. Mm. And there was that sort of like suppressed, you know, anger under there and discomfort. It's a different England to the England that, say, me and Paul grew up. It's very southern for me, mm. almost quite alien, mm. also quite exotic. But also, inc- I, I really enjoyed this. Mm. I, th- I thought it was inc- terrifically exciting. I thought it was cast really well. I thought, um, what's your Max Beasley? Beasley, Max as, Beasley the, yeah. as the mank copper was great. Mm. Keely Hawes was great. Mm. And it got me straight away yeah. and I thought they explained the weird event this weird event happened you know it was like when Quicksave opened where I'm from it was, uh, <laughs> it, it, that's it, brilliant it, it, yeah it was this really weird event and it's handled really well you know there's like people everyone just falls asleep mm. you know what I mean mm. and there's loads of ha- horses they fall everyone falls asleep and then and it, it I thought it was really fantastic mm. I really enjoyed it Listeners, we are sorry for the terrible spoiler that you just heard. A quick save opening <laughs> indeed kicks off this whole thing. Um, Sean, 
Unlike some adaptations, the series tries to balance the terror parents feel mm. about those mm. strange children with the love they feel mm. for them. Does that water it down or does it actually add to the atmosphere? Oh, I think it adds to it. I think it's extremely powerful and it's very brave of them to do the adaptation again because what more do you say? But they actually... They managed to put so much else on there. The anxiety of parenthood, the fact that, you know, you may love something because you feel terrified by it too. Mm. There's the such complicated emotions to put that through and they do it so well. And I do think we have to keep saying Keely Hawes really pulls it all together. She is so good in this. Mm. And obviously it's the greatest deus ex machina in the world, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it really is coming from somewhere else. And to explain that and to give it, you know, validity that we all do say, OK, all right, everyone is pregnant. You know, it's a big step for yeah. us to suspend that disbelief. I think they do it absolutely beautifully. And I was fairly captivated and I have watched four already. <laughs> and it gets Fine. better and better. I really think it's getting better. Uh, the paranoia of being a pregnant woman. You don't <laughs> see that much in narrative. The, but there's one, they got it. There's one fantastic moment where um, one of the kids says, can I have some biscuits for my lunch? Mm. Uh, I, I'd like chocolate hobnobs and and the mother opens the cupboard and there's this moment of terror where she goes we only have ginger <laughs> and there's a there's a pause where you think is the kid going to kick off now and okay to a much smaller level but every parent has sort of felt that yeah. Oh, yeah. you know maybe their children don't have special powers but mm. every parent has all thought, children oh, have God, special powers are we something for to... a tantrum yeah. now um a lot of it rides on the child actors, which you have been, Sean. Um, I don't know this. <laughs> really? Is this true? Oh, is young, this true? Young Were you Tegan. in the Children's young Film Tegan. Foundation? We're in the Not same quite. room with young Tegan. Did <laughs> you Doctor know Who. this? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, um, I did some acting as well. Finding the right kids is notoriously difficult. Have the yeah. casting directors done all mm -hmm. right in this? Oh, um, fantastic. Um, you can find the right kids. It's directing them, and they're directed beautifully. I think we should say that I think it's all female directors on it's this show. It's six out of eight. Okay, yeah. it's six, written by six David out of eight Carr. episodes is um, female, but yeah. I think that's really important um, because there is such a female slant, obviously, to <laughs> the paranoia and the fear. Um, and the kids are wonderful. It's difficult to play because they have to play everything very, very straight, and they're almost no emoting if you're an alien child, mm. not to give anything away. Mm. Paul. Is it odd that something so claustrophobic about life in a sort of curtain-twitching 50s English village should still work so well? The, the, the moral ambiguities seem almost intact for something so old. Is it the quality of the source material, or have we made little progress? <laughs> well, the, the original text is an amazing piece of work, John Wyndham even though it was sort of classed as science fiction, in a way it's a book about ideas, mm. a book about transition, post-war transition. You know, something was happening, even if it was just the arrival of teenagers, mm. something new. And, and that, that figures for every single generation since, and especially now with, with COVID and the climate change, and even the internet in a way, there's a sense that something disturbing is coming. We don't know what it is. It could be good, it could be bad, but there's change in the air. Mm. And, and uh, John Wyndham had an amazing way of, viewing global catastrophe through something local, if you like, which is where the village mm. comes. And, and to an extent they do that. It's interesting at the beginning because it, it begins and you think, true to the spirit of the original, which was almost a parody of mm. of a certain kind of quintessential Englishness yeah, yeah. Yes, itself. I thought it was Midsummer Cuckoo. I was so going to yeah, for me, this was uh, an episode of Midsummer yeah, Murders yeah. with Max Beasley as Inspector Barnaby. 
and Keely Hawes as your <laughs> yeah, special yeah, guest yeah, star yeah. that yeah. You, you love because you look her up in spot in spotlight. So it had that quality, uh, which I thought was good, and it occurred to me that it, you know every generation, and it, it's also been very influential. Um, the book and certainly the Village of the Damned film in 1960 mm. on, on recent films like Contagion. Mm. That says something disturbing is happening. You don't know what it is. It can't be controlled. Yeah. Uh, well, how do we deal with it? And, and, and in a way, it's, it's how we deal with it rather than fear or scary or monsters. Mm. It's, mm. It's, it's, it's much more sort of um, cerebral and visceral than that. You know, we, we're going to have to get used to this is happening and this is now our future. And we're, that, that's why it's, it's, it's fantastic that it's come at this particular period because that's definitely how we're all thinking. Mm. Something is changing very fast. You know, it could even be the metaphors that's happening. You know, yeah. so a whole way of being human is definitely changing. And we view it through local a, a village and the village postmistress and mm-hmm. all those wonderful cliches that could almost be Enid Blyton or Agatha Christie. Yeah. But the but the larger sense is this is a transitional period in humanity and we don't know what we're going to be like on the on the other side. And I was worried because the the book and indeed the Village of the Damned are two of my favourite things ever. So I was slightly worried that this might, you know, um, trivialise that or, or ruin it. But I realised that in, in, a, in, a, in a classic sense of a great text, it, it can be changed from generation to generation mm-hmm. and period to period. And it's the Wyndham, I think, that that is the genius in this, even though it's gone through many sort of transformations itself. Sean, the, the series also touches on a lot of issues about women's body autonomy mm. and the struggles of motherhood, mm. you know, feeling something alien is growing mm. inside you, the, the, the battle between women and the state. Well, also, for control, you know. What is quite interesting is I haven't seen a much drama, and I'm sure, write in if you want to, um, about when babies arrive in a relationship, they often are the nuclear bomb. They're the thing that destroys the relationship. Mm. This is about that. It's about suddenly that we see very close couples at first, and it's a bit cloying, but it's meant to be. We see them driven apart, purely... Played against each other. And played against each other by this, this alien entity, mm. as it were, like a child is. And so it's... It's dealing with enormously honest and actually quite brutal and quite tough truths about about anxiety and about parenthood mm. and about all you know with things that you don't really see. It's usually cereal packet stuff, and everybody gets on. Isn't so it's end, a big it? thumb, thumbs yeah, up absolutely. from all of us, right? I thought, I thought we're, one thing I would say. I thought the, yeah. the sound design was brilliant as well. Mm. I thought, like I wrote, I said it was like Miss Marple meets <laughs> Boards of Canada. Nice do, do you know what I mean? Because yeah, 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 and I, yeah, I was yeah. listening to it last night on the headphones. Oh, great! And it yeah. was just like this full sensory weird experience, mm. and absolutely, yeah, fantastic. Mm. And even the title image, which is yeah. a sort of flower, uh, yeah. but also a bit of a vagina, yes. vulvaresque. Brilliant! Yeah. Brilliant! There's a great scene where they. They, they, there's that nice couple. They go with it. They, they're like, oh, we're going to hospitals. You know, have the first scan. They're like, can you go in this room? And they go to this room. There's everyone else in the village there, yeah. and she, she just is in denial and disbelief. Mm-hmm. I thought it was mm-hmm. really well played. Mm-hmm. You know, we're nothing to do with this. This is our yeah. baby born yeah. from love. And they're yeah. like, no. Midwich Cuckoos is out on June the second on Sky Max, and then on Now TV from the third of June. Now, welcome again to Paul Morley, journalist, author, broadcaster. We've done all this stuff, and we, you are the Renaissance. Well, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will add the code. You know that you are the man that Andrew Harrison, our other co-presenter, credits with helping him pass his A-levels. Oh. 
because he quoted everything that was on Frankie Goes to Hollywood sleeves et al. No, exactly. What yeah, it was for, yeah. Yes. All your Derrida. <laughs> it got in there. All your Derrida. <laughs> All your Derrida. Um, everything you can shake a stick at. Yeah. So you helped him get to where he Pleased is to today. hear it. Fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I, I bought. I remember buying Relax when I was three, eleven. <laughs> and all this stuff on the back and I was like I didn't realise that was you would written all this I'm like yeah my mum's like are you sure you should be reading this I'm like yes well, every, <laughs> just to completely go off a tangent everyone at my school bought Relax everyone you do yeah, like yeah. and I know that parents made um, all, all the girls in my class put uh, um, put it in a brown paper bag oh excellent you, we weren't allowed the cover and this whole thing that went round you know. well what's the story because I remember the cause, like two people back to back who who, who who illustrate what's the story behind that? Well, that, that was just something the band had, actually, you know. But, uh, you know, we, we decorated it on the 12-inch, which is maybe what you're referring yeah. to. I did a condensed version of a pornographic novel. <laughs> All right, OK. Which seemed the thing to do, because, funny enough, I used to think maybe Bowie and T-Rex records in the early 70s had that on them. In my imagination, yeah, it was yeah, only yeah. when I went back and looked, of course, they no, didn't. they didn't. But I, I figured they did, because I was so excited <laughs> well, and sexually turned on by these records. <laughs> I thought they must have, you know. And then in the early 80s, they needed to. Well, The Islander is your latest book. Um, I believe it's not got a, <laughs> it's not got a cover that has a cavorting couple on it just yet. That might be the paperback version. You've written it with Chris Blackwell, who it, obviously is the head honcho, as it's, we say. It's, it's Chris's autobiography. Yeah. I like being a ghost occasionally. I was the ghost of Grace Jones, which I think is, yes, is that's one right. of my favourite things I've ever done. <laughs> that's a great... Yeah, ghost like, of Grace We should Jones. have just the, introduced you like that. And we have okay. with us it would the, have been ghost a very good yeah. the ghost of Grace yeah. Jones. Uh, so uh, tell us about this book, uh, anyway. this is, Yeah, the story of Chris Black, well, therefore the story of Island Records to an mm-hmm. extent from mm-hmm. the very beginning, late 50s in Jamaica. I'm working on uh, records in Jamaica in the late 50s, early 60s, moving to uh, London pretty much when independence happened in Jamaica, launching mm-hmm. Island Records in London in 1962, still a reggae label for three or four years, mm-hmm. and then gradually uh, transforming into a different kind of label as well uh, with English psychedelic rock. And, yeah. and, and you signed the Spencer Davis group very early on, and that led to traffic, and then that led to an island that became one of the great, if not the greatest, sort of independent record labels mm. in, in history. And I'm, I'm kind of interested also a certain period of time has come to an end, if you like. Mm. And Chris is one of those figures, you think of your Angelou Goldhams and your Brian Epsteins and even your McLarens and, and the great rock managers, the Albert Grossman, these kind of iconoclastic figures in, in rock music that, that, that don't exist anymore in that form. They're, they've, they've mutated into mm. other things, mm. whether that's an Elon Musk or a yeah. Kanye West or whatever it is they've mutated yeah. into, a showrunner, Stephen Moffat or something. Mm-hmm. But I'm just interested in this type of figure that's sort of mm. entering history, if you like. And, and Chris has uh, been quite private over the years mm. and always behind the scenes. He was only two or three times, if that, photographed with Bob Marley. He, he preferred to keep away. He was from a world where record producers and record company guys, were, you never knew who they were. They were mysteries. Mm. But, but yeah. now he, he figured that it was time to tell his history. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about it for a long time, right. 20, 30 years. Obviously, um, you've written um, about Tony Wilson extensively, mm. and the Tony Wilson book uh, was out, was it last year? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Chris Blackwell is a very different figure. As you're saying, he chooses to be behind the curtain as yes. such, whereas Tony was very much at the forefront. Yeah. What kind of... I mean, could Island Records have existed without Chris Blackwell No, 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 no. It's his work of art, yeah. in the way that, say, Factory was for Tony. You yeah. know, they're, they're not particularly musicians, and they're not particularly... 
anything you can put your finger on what it is they do or don't mm. do. Mm. But those kind of um, uh, figures, I mean, influenced, you know, by by the guys in America that would have done Sun Records or Atlantic or Electra, mm. you know, your Jack Holtzmans and uh, people like that. that. You know, the idea of, of, of a, la- a record label being a, a theatre almost, a piece of theatre, mm. an artwork in itself. And Chris and Tony, you know, Chris Blackwell is is definitely an influence on Tony Wilson to an extent in the okay. terms of creating an, yeah. a, an identity for the label, mm. but also the, the the disruptive figure for Tony would have been McLaren. Right. So there, there's different types of of, of, of you know sort of empresarios yes. and, and people who, who mix the business and they are they create things, they create yeah. situations, they make things happen, they put people together. Chris and Tony shared that very much. Mm. You mentioned Grace Jones earlier. She's in the book, obviously. But I was surprised there aren't that many scandalous stories of her. We don't get uh, we don't get your other book here. He's very polite about her and doesn't really give much away. Well, Chris is a witness to yeah. a lot of things, I bet. and Chris, being Chris, will not give away the secrets. You mm. know, I mean that's part of Chris. Anyway. <laughs> you know, he, he wanders yeah. through. There yeah. he is. You know, very early on with Errol Flynn, Noel Coward, and Ian Fleming. I was going to say Errol Flynn seemed to have taught him to deal with yes. quote unquote difficult it's, it's artists. It's what he says. You know, yeah. after being uh, hanging out with Errol Flynn in Jamaica <laughs> in the nineteen fifties, yeah. he seemed to have had it away with his mother. In, maybe inventing mm. celebrity state, maybe <laughs> inventing celebrity status, if yes. you like. You know, but, but by the time he gets to Marianne Faithful, Chris John Ginger Baker. <laughs> He worked with Blind Faith. Yeah, yeah. He, he he wanders through it. Chris is a great wanderer. He's very nomadic. There's mm. a sense of him just wandering along a beach, leave, leaving footprints. The footprints happen to be these great records, this great label, these great studios like mm. Compass Point. But Chris is just wandering through, and he's 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 got that sense. You know, early doors. He's meeting Miles Davis and yes, hanging out with Miles Davis and, yeah. and getting the experience that way. Yeah. But he, he he won't really let on. He won't no. really let on intentionally about a lot of things. So you know, the book in that sense is very much about the process mm. he, 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 he had making a record mm. being in the studio putting things together making the, the John Martin album One World at uh, his home in, in Thiel in, in near Reading and, and using his house as a sort of musical instrument and the mm. garden and the lake outside and making this extraordinary record putting different musicians together it's, it's very much that and Compass Point and putting Grace's band together at Compass Point yeah. Yeah. Chris wanted to tell those stories uh, so we don't we don't necessarily understand what happened maybe between Grace and Sean Connery or mm. you know these stories. <laughs> that, that's that's another world and probably needs a biography rather than an autobiography to right. tell. You know, right? I get you, Alex. You wanted to ask a couple of questions. I was, I was really fascinated by the way he talks about Richard Branson in the tail end of the book because they obviously knew each other quite well at some point, and then he talks about Branson as one of those billionaires who are launching rockets into space. And kind of juxtaposes himself having a quiet ranch sort of farm in Jamaica. That, he, he actually says, I bought a big tree and everything that went with it. Yes. <laughs> um, and yes. it got me thinking that that entire generation have kind of divided into two streams of people who now run the world mm. and hippies who stayed hippies, essentially. And and. Do we not have enough of him in position of power and a little too much of the other? You mean Chris? Mm. Chris has never. Chris has has been much more a softer influence on on things, if you like. Mm. You know, there is an influence, an influence on Jamaica, an influence on Jamaican politics and and its sort of environment, but but not as visible uh, as celebrity based as as mm. Branson. You know, Chris. I, I, there's a line <laughs> in the book I particularly like where Chris suddenly mentions how he first saw talking heads with Andy Warhol. 
And I kept asking him about them because where's this come from? Mm. What do you mm. mean you're hanging out with Andy? Well, you know, but he, he, he doesn't really want to talk about that. He, he's not going to go on yeah, TV yeah. And, and sell his brand. He's not. He, he, what he likes doing is, is giving people like Branson the initial space that they go on and create uh, their brand. So, you know, the first person that gives Branson a sort of distribution deal and encourages him is Chris. So there's a lot of Chris influencing people who do go on. And you're absolutely right. You know, a lot of those hippies in the 60s found music as a way of expressing themselves. And then uh, and then some of them dropped the music and, and went on to do other things. And music was an expedient way into creating a brand, mm. maybe for Richard Branson, more than Chris. Whereas Chris, it's the music. It was the music. And then, and then he moves on via studios to hotels and he loves the hotels. I mean, he creates golden. I've been mean, watching the Depp. Moss world oh. in, uh, this week, and of course, where that yes. happened, the Depp Moss incident, is at, uh, at Chris's house. hotel, <laughs> Goldeneye. Yeah. Mm. And Chris loves the idea that he brings people in. Steve Jobs is over there, Elon Musk is over there, mm. Beyonce, and Jay. so he's still creating a scene that he's sort of wandering through, but he's actually brought it into his own domestic environment. I know? wanted to ask you a little bit about that because of where the book leaves off. We leave it with him and his resorts basically closed travel still largely suspended and a sort of insecurity about the future and all those jobs and all of that. And I was wondering whether you had a bit of an update for us. Has everything reopened? Are numbers where they were? Is everyone doing okay, basically? Well, in that it, it, Jamaica's world? recovering and, and the numbers are getting better. It's 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 you know Chris wanted to be quite honest about about that sense of of of, of the later life and and a lot of his colleagues and people he's worked with directly and indirectly starting to die you know there, mm. there, there's a melancholy to it because it's a book about memories much as anything else we can all go on about the glamour and the amazing world this is and these astonishing records but it's also a life that comes to an end and and in the last couple of years a lot of people around him have been you know the toots has, has gone Robbie Shakespeare has gone Charlie Watts who he, mm. you know he was almost there the first time Charlie Watts ever played with the Rolling Stones you know mm. and there's that that sense of that fading away is it, kind of interesting and honest I think rather than you know, uh, because it's a book also about a period in time that's sort of gone away as much as there is mm. a sense. I think we're mm. going to find that this out in a minute with, with Liam Gallagher yeah. of people still holding on to the idea <laughs> of the album. We have to be honest and say those yeah. days have gone. Mm. They were amazing and astonishing. And what I was going to you know. ask, and we can talk mm. a lot about, because factory days have gone. And that was, mm. you know, a far more recent history. How is are things like TikTok from the Paul Morley view, changing the way that people consume culture or changing the way that pop stars have to be pop stars four times a day on TikTok again. Can you see an evolution there or it's just we're all doomed? Well, there's definitely an evolution. I mean, mm. this only might be a transitional period anyway into a, a state of being that we're, 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 we're just rehearsing. Yeah, right. It's not necessarily... I mean, to some, yeah. to some it's probably the thing, yeah. but, but it moves very quickly. Yeah, and I, yeah. I, my feeling is it's very much just a rehearsal for whatever does come next, which will be extraordinary in terms of stretching humanity in, into many different shapes. But also what's interesting is, is the new um, you know, platforms, programs, whatever they're called, they all inherit the 50, 60 years of popular culture mm -hmm. at the moment. So they're reheating, yeah. slicing up, dicing, re remaking. It's all in that image. Yeah. So as much as it's new technolo mm. technology, you know, it, uh, new technology, everything about it is uh, people, have, certainly even my generation and older, can recognise the echoes and, and, mm. and where it's come from. There's nothing 
intrinsically innovative within the formats mm-hmm. that it is equal to the format. And of course, when you know the, the, the other technological advancements came along, the vinyl and the recording studio, et cetera, et cetera, the, the art that went with it was as innovative, if not more, than the technology. At the moment, mm-hmm. it seems to be the technologies ahead. Yes, and, it's and, and, it. and what's the content? Yeah. Is, is is essentially a, a sort of digestion of of the last fifty sixty years of, of popular culture. Yeah. So all I'm interested. Top the boxes all at once. Yes, I'm interested <laughs> in what will be the the format mm. that is is, mm. is 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 unleashed by the technology yeah. instead of the technology just needing like a parasite. It's very Wyndham in that sense, which is why the, <laughs> that that did remind me that, that what the the disturbance yeah. is is. Mm. Is the internet and the children themselves are are the are the TikTokers? You know that's why we're so scared of them because we don't know how to talk to them. We don't know what they're going on about. We pretend we know and we might yeah. even do one ourselves, but we don't yeah. know. And yeah. I think we're very much in in that state. So that's hence my role, I guess, as as I've ended up as Paul Gambaccini once called me, and I was a bit insulted at the time, but I understood what he meant—a historian. It's just interesting that period of time. Uh, what was it? Was it just to supply mm. this next transitional period with its mm. material, mm. or did it have a greater purpose? Or it's, is it just something as yes. as Liam knows full well? Is it just something to be nostalgic about? You know, <laughs> it, it, it was this unusual post-war period. I think we always thought that oh, would this last forever? But yes, oh, reco- yeah, reco- recording forever. Mu- recorded music hasn't been around that mm. long. Mm. It defined youth culture for a bit, yeah. and that period ended probably in the late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah. Because I think we still can't get over it. Can't get over it. Yeah, where's the next acid house? And it's not coming, guys. The next acid house is your iPad. It's probably a nap or a platform. That's right. That's what they queue up for now. They don't queue up for Rolling Stones tickets. They queue up for the new Apple. Yes, and and it's true that you know they say what's the new, you know, what's the new Sex Pistols? The next Sex Pistols, new Sex Pistols was, is it a cake? Yeah, because <laughs> they're looking in the wrong area. Yeah, you know? that's it. they're yeah. looking at this old-fashioned thing yeah. of recorded post-war yes. music. Yes. It's over. <laughs> it's over kids it's, Sorry over, it's just another pop, thing yeah, it's, not, it's not over kids it's over grown ups it's that's over thing. it's yeah. just a thing that happened we can still use it's great culture but it's just one oh, more dear. and on that note maybe we should to celebrate. maybe we should re- <laughs> rename the programme <laughs> okay well yeah well, you can get is, the islander this is going to be an awkward segue <laughs> yeah. um, so every week we ask our guests to bring in a current favourite track of theirs <laughs> to show how with it they are oh. um Paul, oh. what's yours and why do you love it? Oh, it's Mary Halverson, Night Shift. Mm. Uh, mm. Mary Halverson's an extraordinary guitar player. She comes sort of out of Hendrix, but also Derek Bailey and Jim Hall and Nola Jotty. Um, she's been making records for 10, 15, 20 years. She's just um, released uh, what is essentially a double album on Nonsuch. You can also get it at two separate CDs. Mm. I, I I love her playing because it's it's it shows to me that within all the noise and within all the chaos of streaming etc cetera, etc cetera, there's still a kind of strange logical progression to a certain sort of music and I hear in in Mary you know music that comes out of Annette Peacock and Robert Wyatt who she's mm. worked with and 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 prog like uh, Caravan and uh, that side of prog Soft Machine Matching Mole also bop uh, bebop and um, experimental improvised music like Derek Bailey, uh, you know, where, where it all intersects. But also it does seem as if it is 2022, and it's a record 
you know she made during the pandemic still searching still curious she's got so many ideas it's a guitar player that basically you know in one piece of music has about a hundred ideas and that's still something that turns me on you know mm. the idea that the music isn't necessarily just its sonic display but also the ideas and and, and what it's saying about being alive at a certain time and those pandemic records are interesting in terms of mm. well you know what, we we love that sort of jazzy wonkiness um, <laughs> on this show. oh that's the phrase i was looking for <laughs> yes i'm rusty and, and uh uh, we'll drop is. Night Shift from Amaryllis by Mary Halverson uh, on our playlists and here's a little taste of it now. I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts. some more music. You can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you can get Liam Gallagher. Liam's third solo album, Come On You Know, is released this weekend. Still a fan of the Lennon-McCartney leitmotif? Will this zip our parka or leave us shivering at the door? Let's listen to the track Better Days from the album to get us in the spirit. Here's a taster. Anthony Teasdale, I am going to start with you. <laughs> You're from like the north. Anthony <laughs> <laughs> Teasdale, have you done your homework? Does Liam Gallagher still do it for you if he ever did? What would I say? Um, <laughs> this isn't really my source of thing. <laughs> Cop out. <laughs> but I thought for what it was, I mm-hmm. thought it was surprisingly good. Mm-hmm. And what does it do? It does. Have you ever heard of Oasis? <laughs> it sounds a bit like that. <laughs> so if you like Oasis or the Stone Roses, you know, or Rick Witter, then then you'll, right. you'll like this. And I thought it was decent at what it did. You know, mm. it sounds like I'm damning it with fake praise here. It does. But fair it? play. Yeah. He's done it. He's got he's gone off his arse. He's done it. And he's done a good job of it. It's not my sort of thing, but I enjoyed it. I thought it was catchy. I thought he sounded very optimistic on there. He's found what he is. And I thought it was accomplished at what it was, yeah. So, you know, I'm a bit of a... I I mean, I like him as a person. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I thought, yeah, I can't enthusiastically 
enthusiastic about, about it that much because it's not my sort of thing. But I thought it was good at what it was. Don't come. Okay. It's not a cop. That's not a cop. Yeah. Is that a cop out? I don't know. I was going to say the same thing, you know. Well, I was, well my question to you. <laughs> well, now you're going to have to say yeah. something different. If Liam didn't exist, will we have to invent him? Well, yes, because one of one of the things I find most fascinating is is the notion of of, of thirty four years of rock and roll history and the idea of being the rebel in rock and roll mm-hmm. being turned into what is essentially content. I mean, he's having to make content. He's having to make content so he can keep going and playing the festivals, and therefore it's an album that's for those people that go to those festivals mm-hmm. and wave their hands in the air and want that kind of optimism. So, but it's interesting seeing it turned into content, even within the fact that he's still trying to represent himself as a mm. as a maverick figure from mm. you know the nineteen seventies. Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, one of my favourite things, and, and in a way I, I would have preferred to have reviewed this, is just the trailer for the uh, Liam Gallagher documentary that's on Sky a lot at the minute, when he seems to say something about tofu, and then he is what he is, plays a bit of pool, mm. here about two minutes, or two seconds of music, and, yeah. and that to me is the perfect encapsulation of the Liam Gallagher I love having around. Mm. I'm very pleased I'll never have to listen to this again, <laughs> not in a negative way, but yeah. it's just that, that it is for a certain kind of you know um, consumer, if you like, mm. and they wouldn't like to be called consumers because they're, they're still the illusion that it's you know it's rock and roll rebellion and it wears those clothes mm-hmm. you know as well it's ever going to do I'm, I'm always surprised I loved it back in you know what was called the day when a pop career would last about two years and then they'd have to go off to Butlins mm-hmm. well, the you idea were, you that were old at 24 yeah we were old at 24 absolutely 24. you so were expecting it, to have a I'm, career I'm that. probably foolishly and people mm. tell me off for this mm. still incredibly surprised <laughs> that this now goes on for 30 years yeah. and it's okay <laughs> yeah. and it seems to you know uh, uh, got to be uh, offensive to a fundamental um, idea about about the music itself that it then in- incredibly instantly contradicts but of course those rules were all made up anyway mm. and why shouldn't they go on mm. for 30 years but it just strikes me as being I mean I'm looking forward to Liam at 70 I hope I hang on to see it because yeah. you know I always thought this generation would have, the ninety generation would have the most growing up, the most trouble growing up if you like, right? Because there, there was a laddish boyishness about what they were doing, mostly. If you'll forgive me for well, it was pretty much mostly a sort of male sickness, if mm. you like, for the sixties. And I, I was just intrigued about how they would grow up, and they're sort of growing up pretty much as I thought. The yeah. Parkers get more expensive yes. and more designer, yes. but they're essentially still. So Liam's Parker—that's why I like like about that Sky trailer. I'm looking at that Parker, thinking, yeah, yeah, nice. just I, I mean, that I have that age, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and my whole yeah. life is Instagram accounts with stolen Stone Island Parker. That's right. You know, I always say everyone's a socialist till it comes to football and coats <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's this, this, yeah. the coat is everything so the, if we were reviewing his coat yeah. I'd be I'd be up there with five stars <laughs> but the record I'm, I'm unfortunately you know down in one star but okay. um, that's that's just because you know when it begins and you think I don't want to be told within 10 seconds in my head oh that's that rolling st- that's that from 1966 you know mm. but that's a personal thing and that's my own sickness mm. so who am I to disparage the sickness of other people who love that mm. nostalgia you know yeah you're talking about more power power that's the one yes, yes. which has the, the children's choir on it which is completely you can't always get what you want Alex now there are moments <laughs> in this album where he talks about vulnerability I think he is trying to evolve as a Liam Gallagher <laughs> into the next um, decade. There's a bit where he talks about, I'm sick of acting like I'm tough. Come on, baby, give us a hug. Did it work for you? To be honest, I don't know what I can add to the sentence, mm. this has gone on for 30 years and it's OK, which is both a perfect review and sounds like a lyric from the album. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I come to this... I was determined 
to listen to this mm. without the baggage of everything we know and yeah. everything that's and there's a lot of baggage gone into it and there's a lot of baggage and i found that the the music made it quite difficult for me to do that mm. because it has exactly that walk and that swagger and that like everything about it is gallagher yeah mm. um because it's it, you can't change that because that's the content that's expected so I, it, I guess it's so. trapped but i thought you know. within that so if you look at it as an exercise of someone mm. being given a really mm. narrow mm. Uh, brief a really specific <laughs> envelope yeah. mm-hmm. and still managing to explore different mm-hmm. stuff within that I thought it had some really good tunes yes. on it. I thought I really appreciated the optimism yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, you know, the, the, there's a couple of tracks. Um, Don't go halfway. I really liked. I really liked Too Good for Giving Up. Mm-hmm. Um, the, like the final lyric is the universe will provide a guiding hand, a crack of light. You're too good for giving up. And I mean, it does all sound. A little bit like you fed every Oasis and Gallagher mm. solo project into AI and yes. asked oh, yes. it to produce something which, out of all of that. Which, which it probably was how they made it because the technology does exist to do mm. that. But it, but it, 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 Citation it, needed, Paul Morley. Well, you know what I mean. You know, like, the, you know, those of us that do talking can, books are fully aware now that right, robots are doing the majority it, yeah. of talking books. You know, but, it, it, the technology does exist. I, I don't know what you mean by that. Sorry, which bit? I don't, that, I don't know what I'm talking about myself now. Sorry, if you have three seconds of a voice, you can basically create that. You know, you can get that voice there for the whole to read the whole bloody Bible in that voice. So I mean, I never thought it would fall to me as a sort of opera fan and blur aficionado to mm. defend but Gallagher, it, but, it, but it, I, it never annoyed me. No, but, I, but, and that's quite a lot t- nowadays, isn't it? That, that I, I don't find myself rushing for the pause button because I've had enough First listen, I thought it was the worst album I'd ever heard <laughs> because the robot was being Liam Gallagher. And I just thought, how can you get away with this? When it's dead, it doesn't even die. Nothing's new, nothing's cool. I just thought, oh, my God, this is awful. I hate it, I hate it. I want to, want to put on our WhatsApp. I hate this. Um, second listening, I thought was absolute work of genius because it's meta. And there's something about it. I, I saw what he was doing. And once I got what he was doing, I thought, you're doing this really, really well. As you say, the, the remit is so narrow. Yes. He's done it. I feel strongly that artists of a certain age, mm. that your output a lot of the time is about giving things to your audience, but that you're allowed after a certain age to do stuff that asks for a bit of love back. And I don't find anything terrible about that. It's his you know? I think you're right. It's his job. You know, it's Liam Gallagher's Liam Gallagher. His job is being Liam Gallagher. And Liam Gallagher is like being... He's like being a chippy, isn't he, right? So if he's a chippy, he has to go make tables and fit kitchens. Mm. That's what he does. Liam Gallagher has, has to yeah. make Liam Gallagher records because then that gets him booked. Yeah, I was going to say. And when the customer custom- walks in, they don't want a Thai curry. Yeah, they exactly. want cod and chips. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and exactly. that's what he wraps up and it, gives them. And it's bloody good cod and, and chips, okay. as it were. It doesn't <laughs> have to be interesting all the time. Yeah. So, yeah, so if you review it under a different category, yeah. it's, it's a classic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and with that... I I think we should leave it. Now, on to literature. Winners of the International Booker Prize typically see a 500% rise in sales year on year. So last week, I sauntered off to the South Bank Centre to catch up with one of this year's six shortlisted writers and one of my absolute favourites. Mieko Kawakami is the author of the devastatingly brutal book Heaven, which is translated by Sam Bett and David Boyd. 
Her replies are voiced via her interpreter, Hiromi Sakai. Well, firstly, Mieko, congratulations on your book being selected for the International Booker Prize. Heaven is your second novel to be translated into English, and you bring your visceral, perhaps often brutally honest writing to the subject of schools and young people. Can you tell me what brought you to write about bullying? When I write novels, usually there are several, multiple different themes overlapping to each other, and they start taking shape as I write. But in, in, in this instance, there was this um, absolute uh, violence imposed on the victims. And how these those vulnerable people who have no power will fight and survive, and how they can have hope, and how uh, their friendship, uh, what will happen to the friendship between the two victims. So I wanted to know the answers to these questions by writing this novel. Let's come on and talk about Breasts and Eggs, which was your first novel to be translated into English. There were two translators for Breasts and Eggs, one for the dialogue and one for the prose. And much of the book is written in this very rich um, Osakan dialect, which draws on these traditions of tragic comedy and using humour as social coping. Can you tell me a bit about that translation process? How did you pick your translators? Do you feel like that the whole message of the book comes across? Ten years ago, I met David in a translation workshop. Even that time, his understanding about Japanese literature was so profound, and his love also was profound. So uh, I wanted to work with somebody to translate who is from the same generation, and David is. That's important for me because, of course, gender is important, but to be born in the same generation means that we have shared experience because we, we were of the same sort of age. Having uh, acquired the help of David was a kind of ideal for me. And then David brought in some to help him. And then we started working as, as a trison. Osaka dialect, it's called dialect, but really the true beauty of Osaka dialect is not in the dialect itself. It's actually an established culture itself. So therefore, we took a long time, the three of us uh, took a long time to discuss how the dialogue should be translated. We started uh, with uh, just an idea from using rap. In the end, the two translators decided that uh, those three uh, protagonists, the three uh, ladies in the novel, we should look at in what kind of room they live in, what kind of dresses they put on, what, what's the speed of, of their dialogue, and that sort of things. So we, we just looked at how they live their lives. Let's come on and talk about the existing literary canon of Japanese authors. There are lots of non-Japanese readers who will still stereotype literature, especially from Asian women, as being about quiet, subservient women. I've read things about the fact that Japanese literature focuses on cats, for instance. And Mieko, I know you're one of few authors who's interviewed Haruki Murakami and you challenged him over his depiction of women characters in his novels. Do you think that there are still some outdated tropes that dominate our idea of literature from Japan? In various levels in Japanese society, women are not well respected enough yet. And you can just take a simple story of birth control pills that you can't just buy off the drugstore or even the marriage system that uh, it's, it's against women. Therefore, it's still in Japan, women are still controlled by people who are not women. It hasn't changed. Having said that, having said that, lots of people 
in English-speaking world and also from Asia, people are expecting this situation. I think the, their expectation is growing that this situation will improve. And another thing I want to add is that if you think about Japan, lots of people think about Tokyo. But um, that's not true because in Japan, not everybody lives uh, like people in Tokyo. We still have differences in, in wealth and social standings and um, we are not a equal society. We have some history to think about. So I don't want to write books that just meet satisfied readers who expect Japan to be homogenous and everybody is the same and women are obedient and quiet. I don't want to write books like that. And then my, my readers have accepted that. They loved my books and I'm very, very happy and glad about that. I'm certainly one of those readers who's loved those books. So if Breasts and Eggs was about the plurality of womanhood and Heaven is about bullying, what can we expect from the book you've just released, All the Lovers in the Night? All the Lovers in the Night The latest book, All the Lovers in the Night, has two themes. One is light, one is language of words, and existence as human beings. The world is full of light. But we don't know what light is, really, what, what is it? And also the words, we don't know where words came from. Human existence is, is very similar to the existence of the lights and the words. So I wanted to depict that aspect of lights and, lights and words and human existence with some poetry incorporated into the book. Thank you both ever so much for talking to me today. Now, some music. We are still in the habit of asking our esteemed guests to bring in a current track for us all to listen to around the campfire of our minds. And I'm going to ask you, Anthony Teasdale, what you have brought in for us. Well, I've brought in this virtual meta double vinyl import. Oh, look at it, look at it. Which I will (laughs) open up on my jeans like people in Eastern Bloc where I've got used to do. He's doing the mime. He's actually doing the mime. Because there is a way of doing this that was very sought after, that you would open up an import record, the cellophane on it, on your jeans, and only the most gifted of record record shop at... um, assistants would be able to do this mm, the yeah. rest would be putting nails in yeah, yeah. or knives there is a way of doing we learn it. something on this, 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 this and i say yeah. he opened he opens that lp yeah very tell us about well. the music though tony because we haven't got all day right okay <laughs> um so i've brought in the new mr fingers around uh, mm-hmm. album now mr fingers did can you feel it and he's like the incredibly tasteful it's like the habitat of deep house and i again in a way it's a bit like the liam gallagher thing when i when this came i've always been a fan of him he's called larry haird <laughs> and really i've always loved his sort of like soulful machine music it's fantastic mm-hmm. but it's and his new album sounds like it could have been made 34 years ago in chicago it's incredibly pleasant tasteful deep house some slow stuff some soul stuff on there and I knew exactly what I was going to get when it came up. Mm-hmm. And it's great. And I don't expect anything more. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, and especially electronic music, which for years was all about constant change. So, you know, house comes, techno comes, then jungle comes, drum and bass comes, two-step garage comes, grime comes, mm-hmm. all this bang, 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 all these new genres. And then like everything else, it sort of ran out. Yeah. And then it's just being made. And I think house music was music made originally for kids in clubs in Chicago 
and now it's made for graphic designers to listen to while they're working <laughs> from like home. <laughs> you know. I think you've put it there very well. Very poetic, yes. We have cleared this so that we can listen to a little bit. This is Around the Sun, Mr Fingers. Thirty-six years after the original, Tom Cruise returns for Top Gun Maverick, still wood. <laughs> the film follows Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell's return to the United States fighter program known as Top Gun, where he must face past demons as he trains a group of young fighter pilots for a mission that, at first glance, seems a bit, well, impossible. Here's a little trailer. 30 plus years of service. Combat medals, citations. Only man to shoot down three enemy planes in the last 40 years. Yet you can't get a promotion, you won't retire. Despite your best efforts, you refuse to die. should be at least a two-star admiral by now. Yet here you are. Captain. Why is that? It's one of life's mysteries, sir. Sean, we went to the movies together to we see did, this. We did, uh, Popcorn night. and everything. Yeah. It was a date. <laughs> um, great propaganda works because it bypasses the brain. The original Top Gun was the zenith or nadir, depending on your view, of the Reagan era. It was basically an extended version of South Park's America, fuck yeah. Mm. Does the sequel reflect on this or just extend it? Well, you may not be surprised to know that I haven't seen the first one. Because it wasn't one of the films I would have gone to see. I'm sorry, everybody. You should watch it now because you You will watch it with an incredible meta eye. But I thought that that gave me quite a clear view on let's go and see this film and what is it like. So you saw it fresh. I saw it absolutely fresh. No idea what the first one was about. I think it was about flying a plane. Um, And I, my mind sat down and didn't want to like it. (laughs) By the end, I thought it was absolutely incredible. And I, having nice. having heard Tom Cruise talk about it, what it is is cinema, and he knows how to do cinema. And cinema is about exhilaration, it's about pacing. Mm. It's not necessarily about plot, it's not necessarily about the characters within it, because there are types. It's certainly not of, about plot. Yes, yes. Um, but there are points, and I was saying to you afterwards, it reminds me of a Clouseau film called Wages of Fear, which is a 1950s film, which is you are on the edge of your seat during a sequence which is just two people driving a truck mm. but they happen to be driving nitroglycerin so they can, there is no way that they can disturb it otherwise bang it was like that and there are these incredible fighting scenes and these incredible aviation scenes that are completely that pure cinema no mind you know it's it's yeah, oddly yeah. it's physical it's this alchemy of what cinema can do and what a giant image will do to you and how caught up you get in it and, and that is fascinating 
And yeah, that's I mean, a, a, a film like that lives on dies or dies by its action sequences. Yeah, of course. And they were incredible. Yeah. You know, the, it, at times it almost felt, felt like you were in a simulator. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, you got the fight or flight sensation as if you were in a plane that was falling mm. and all of that. Um, Kelly McGillis, who was a little older mm. and quite a bit taller than Tom, even <laughs> at, still would, even at the time of the original... <laughs> Um, she does not return. No. She is replaced by the younger and rather frighteningly thin-looking Jennifer Connolly. Yes. Um, but there's a lady pilot. Um, what does all this tell us? I'm not sure that dissecting the female roles in this will give us much joy, to be honest. <laughs> the Jennifer Connolly character isn't terribly fleshed out, and she doesn't really have a real job. She's not an aviator. You know, she doesn't drive a fast car. You know, one of the stills of it is her sitting on the back of the motorbike with Tom Cruise. You think, ouch, it is 2022. Um, the female <laughs> pilot is okay, but she fits in with the boys. I was interested, and I want to ask you, that the, I heard it's not as homoerotic as the first one, but it's incredibly homoerotic, this film. There oh, it is lot... as homoerotic as the first one. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, what yeah. are the obvious... There's a lot of, you know, Tom's trailing fingers <sighs> caressing... Phallic parts of a plane. Yeah. There's a lot of that going on. What did you and feel about the well, well-oiled muscles on the beach that suddenly just play a game of well, catch? It looks like I mean, there's a lot of yeah, the, male so there's torsos. the equivalent. Yeah. You haven't seen the original, so okay, the equivalent yeah. was a beach volleyball game. Okay, is this and was very competitive. Yeah. And in this one, it was a beach American football game, okay. and it was for team building. So they weren't mm. kind of playing off against each other. <laughs> do you see? Do you see how America has changed now? <laughs> how they're now one family. Um, yeah. it, I mean, a lot of it was nostalgia. The the, the mm. beach game, the bike and jacket are exactly yeah, the same, yeah. only a little bit beaten up, mm. like Tom still would. Um, <laughs> I mean, he's shirtless. A lot. Yeah. He climbs out of his girlfriend's. <laughs> did you? you like, did you like? Did you appreciate that? I mean, charm? he climbs out of his girlfriend's window at one point, like yes. a college kid. Yeah. The opening sequence is entirely recreated mm. to the sound of Kenny Loggins's "Danger Zone," um, and I just think it, it is part nostalgia aimed at people who saw the original mm. and and want to believe they've still got it. You know. Yeah. Um, but but part aimed at a younger audience because it works as an as an action movie. I mean, that's basically that's my potted review. I mm. wanted to hate it, and annoyingly, it's quite it's good, really yeah. good. Yeah. It's really good. Right, finally, regular listeners know, and there are loads of you, aren't there? We also ask our guests to bring in their favourite songs of all time, not just current, and we add it to our playlist. Why not? Paul Morley, what have you chosen? Babies on Fire, Brian Eno, an island record, mm-hmm. actually, you know, because island records are always so great. And um, that period, 73, when Brian Eno sort of left Roxy Music yeah. and you didn't think, and, and then suddenly he's making that album mm-hmm. of This Is What I Want Roxy Music to Sound Like, really, and indeed down the line talking ads and even you, you too. You never know. And he's making um, No Pussy Footing, you know, that wonderful sort of post Terry Riley, Steve Rice sort of loop. Uh, incredibly exciting. I still, I still, you know, playing it now, it just sounds incredibly like it's still going to be around and you do it in 2017. It would sound new. Bunkers pop, my favourite kind of pop. Mm-hmm. Uh, experimental pop, mm-hmm. my favourite kind of pop. 
and it was on, you know, absolutely an Island Records record. You know, when you were buying things, you suddenly noticed that everything you'd bought that year was seemed to be on Island Records. Yeah, and when you started buying records because they were on that label, which, and you you know, you, you, you thought the, the the label had essays, you know, written by Jacques Derrida printed on it because in your mind they did because they were so exciting because you thought you were getting something yeah. else, and even opening it, <laughs> as you yeah. were saying, was was the most yeah. remarkable yeah. thing you'd ever done in your life. Opening the record to take it out. Was 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 a revelation. This, I was always a thumbnail person. Oh, really? Yeah. Did you have a special? Yeah, special. Yeah, yeah. No, I I kept I kept my thumbnail slightly longer to wow. go down. Mm. Anthony Teasdale, what's your best tune ever? Well, this week my best tune ever is because obviously it changes, yeah. doesn't it? You know, it's Duran Duran, the chauffeur, mm-hmm. which is on the B side of Rio, yeah. and that B side of Rio is everything that. A young lad in suburban Merseyside <laughs> dreamed about, mm. and that this was an impossibly glamorous world of Anthony Price suits and leather jackets and high-rise apartments and helicopters and living in Manhattan. And this song is—I mean, it's incredibly subtle. It starts with like an eight-to-eight drum machine, and then eventually the drums come in as Simon Le Bon is singing about, you know driving his lady around and it's mm-hmm. it's it's a for a 14 well how old was i then i was 10 i was um <laughs> it was very fruity as well you know there is there is the, you know i mean i think <laughs> simon Le, music is for simon Le bon, he paints this fantastic picture you know and it, it i just can see it now you know maybe it's in miami or something tropical about mm. it and it's incredibly glamorous and it's a brilliant banging tune and that whole b-side of rio is fantastic futuristic synth pop which I love and with that we're at the end of the podcast and it's closing time chatter what will we be discussing as we strip down to our boxes and play a nice and oily game of catch on the beach (laughs) Tony what's your closing time chatter Uh, well sad news this morning that Andy Fletcher from Depeche Mode Mm. died you know stuff like that's really unexpected isn't it we just don't expect people Mm. to die who, who look young yeah you know in a way that like you know like you were talking about Tom Cruise before you know 60 odd year old yeah. man who's still Ray Liotta like tw- as well yeah, yeah. Ray, Ray Liotta and you're like oh these people are meant to be here for another 25 yeah, yeah. to 30 years we're meant to enjoy them more mm. so that took me I, I had a look which is incredibly joyful which is the first film you've seen of Depeche Mode appearing in, at Crocs in Basildon mm. <laughs> and it's it's so so Basildon is you know as you know a new town that's probably a little bit like an upmarket Skelmersdale all the kids, there's some new romantics there in this sort of like Essex New Town. They go to this club and um, Depeche Mode are doing an early gig. And it's, they're playing New Life and it's just absolutely... And they look just, so young, don't they? They're just like these like little lads. Yeah. And yeah, the sound is just fantastic. Mm. And the reporter's going, and the Depeche Mode fans don't look at the don't look at the stage. They dance to themselves. and Which is, me as a raver is my sort of thing, not looking at the stage. Mm. And the sound is absolutely brilliant and joyful and futuristic and life-affirming and wonderful. And I, that's that's where it took me today and how much I love that sound. And that's the sound of me being a little lad thinking, mm-hmm. I love this. And I, I just thought, oh, how incredibly sad. So that's, yeah, a bit of a bum note mm-hmm. to start the, start the program. Alex, what's your closing time chatter? Well, I have to give a plug to a new sister podcast called Origin Story with uh, Dorian Linsky and Ian Dunt been listening to that voraciously um it's all about 
terms that are misused mm. today, like McCarthyism or neoliberal or stuff like that, and looking at mm. where they originate from and what they actually mean yeah. and how we're using them wrongly with Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky. Just very, very good. But my actual recommendation would be we did a little podcast with Arthur Snell mm -hmm. recently on um, sort of what someone intimidated by classical music and opera can use to kind of get into mm. it. And in that vein, there's a Carmen opening on the 2nd of June at Opera Holland Park. Okay. So if you're in London or you want to come to London for a little weekend, you can go have a little picnic. And it is a perfect, perfect introduction mm -hmm. to that kind of music. It's really accessible as a story. Yeah. Everything is it's clear. It's one of the they only have, ones I can stand, yeah, they, actually, There's dialogue, there's surtitles. Yeah. So, you know, the... the, the The mezzo-soprano singing Carmen, Kezia Bienik, is tremendous. I've had the luck to uh, be present at some of the rehearsals. Um, Cecilia Stinton is directing. A female director really brings something mm. to this story, which is basically about an abusive relationship. And uh, Lee Reynolds conducts very well. Mm -hmm. So um, look for the Opera Holland Park website. And if you want something easily accessible that will get you into this mm -hmm. perfect, perfect starter. One thing that's been really annoying me is that between 9 and 11 o'clock, I'm having a slight trouble just alighting on a TV program to watch because I'm, I'm usually ready to start watching TV about 9 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. And um, at 10, they've moved this morning to 10 o'clock, which has slightly annoyed me because that's thrown me because I, I was used to it starting at 10.30. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you set your watch by it. Yeah, so I still, I'm still not comfortable um, yeah. I'm going to this morning at 10 o'clock. So I've started watching Jeremy Vine at 10 o'clock, actually. Yeah. And one of the things that's really infuriating me... Uh, is the fact that even though some people call in and say, will you stop calling our Prime Minister Boris? Because in a way it sort of, you it's know, term of softens isn't it? and, yeah. it, and it, it's part of his stick. It's part yeah. of his mm. McLaren-esque manipulation of this image of Al Johnson, as his, probably his real name is, <laughs> that somehow he's a cuddly character yeah. and not of the hard right. Uh, and so even though it's pointed out to them and, and Jeremy in his colourful shirt yeah. um, has, has been agreeing with it, they will still flash up in every single caption, it's Boris. Uh, and that's been making me incredibly angry. Yes, I can imagine. Can yes. you ring up? It's funny you should say that yeah. because le just lately, you know, before the internet, obviously, the yeah. whole world was filled with people who rang in radio programs and you ignored, whereas the whole world has turned into those people now. <laughs> But I've, I've suddenly started to find myself interested in what, 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 what happened if I ring in and just mm. make a claim. But what I've noticed that people are saying, will you stop doing this? Mm. Because it is, it, it, it is, it, it is not necessary. And he is Johnson. If you're going to say it's Johnson, that sounds pathetic, but it's just really annoying <laughs> because it is so much that he has created a character, and we've it all is. fallen for it. Yeah. And a bit like we were talking about Liam Gallagher in a way. You know, yes. it, it, it's, it's what made me think of the Liam Gallagher album as being almost the perfect soundtrack to the Johnson era in many ways because yeah. it's the construction of something. Yes, because Boris media. Johnson's political career is the album, isn't it? Because yes. he wants to go and do something it, 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 completely different. Uh, yes, and afterwards, and, and, and he's not interested in being interested prime in I, I, I felt this full enough when um, Jordan. Suddenly decided to call herself Katie Price. Yeah, <laughs> yes, everyone agreed. Yeah, yes, hang I on a minute. Yeah, excuse me. <laughs> why, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Why, why are we all playing along with <laughs> yes, this? I wanted to be knowledgeable. So these things yeah. do keep me up for a couple of minutes. Okay. Usually at ten o'clock in the morning when I'm just about having my morning nap. Being in my sixties. <laughs> <laughs> What about you, Sean? Oh well, it's another sad one. Um, R.I.P. Cattle Coughlin. 
from obviously Micro Disney, Fashima Mansions, but also we talked about his new album just a couple of months ago, Telefiche, that he did with Jackknife Lee. Um, I knew Cattle slightly. I hadn't seen him for a long time, but it hit me really, really hard this week. I do think some people have said he was Ireland's greatest songwriter of the past couple of decades. He absolutely superlative music, an amazing mind, also a really lovely person. And I kind of miss him already and I feel odd that it's hit me, but um, I really, really miss him already. I felt really sad this week. I think it's a real loss and only 61. So, RIP Cattle. Mm. My thoughts are with the family. Really and that's are. the end of the podcast. Thanks so much to Paul Morley and Anthony Teasdale for joining us on the Culture Bunker. Thank you, guys. Remember, you can get all the tunes on our playlists. The links are at the top of the show notes. And it's the bank holiday next weekend, so the Culture Bunker is taking a week off because we're going to be hiding from the monarchists. <laughs> we'll be back on Saturday the 11th of June with more pop culture insight, unless it's eaten itself already. <laughs> Until then, from me and Sean and from producers Alex Rees, Jelena Sofronievich and Alina Ganatra, Thank you for listening. And in memory of Cackle Coughlin, we're going to play out with something from the last album he made with Jackknife Lee, as I said, Telefiche. Here's The Symphonies of Danny LaRue, and here's to Cattle. Kenneth Anger's Lucifer rising Camden 84 show The audience mostly tripping Soundtrack missing, so here's the yellow. Beat down in London town, past the amulets around. Well oiled social blend, none of whom need meet again. Great plans can be announced through champing teeth and cotton mouths. When I get money, you know what I'll do. The symphonies of 